Welcome to the Appalachian Folklore Podcast, a wild hike through the history and migration of the folk culture, stories, traditions, and haints hidden in the hills and hollers of Appalachia. I'm your host, Aaron Bobick. Hey folks, welcome to the February edition of the Appalachian Folklore Podcast. I'm going to be talking about Appalachian love omens, charms, spells, and tokens. Many people, including myself, think that Valentine's Day is overrated. I've never really been a fan ever since we stopped making those little Valentine boxes in elementary school. Mine was always a tinfoil shoebox that looked like a robot. It was really cool. But ever since then, I kind of gave up on Valentine's Day because there's not really anything cool to do. In true Appalachian Folklore podcast fashion, I'd like to start off with a little bit of housekeeping first. Some of you may have seen that my Twitter account was hacked, something called a follow churn. Some bot got in and started friending a bunch of people and then unfriending them and did that repeatedly. And the Twitter algorithm shut my account down. And it took me a few days to get back in. When I finally did, I signed in a couple of times, maybe two or three times within half an hour, and it locked me out again for two or three days. And because of all that, I've decided to go over to Mastodon. My name over there is appfolklorepod at thefolklore.cafe. I want to thank Emma over at the Weird Wiltshire blog for the invite to that server, Honestly, Mastodon is really nice. It flows a lot like Twitter. There's not a lot of people on there, but the people that are there are more laser-focused on folklore. I'm not getting stupid ads like uh, on Twitter when you you know comment on someone's post, then all of a sudden there's a reply to your post, and it's just an ad. There's none of that over on Mastodon. It is kind of, you know, in the infant stages, it is learning to uh, do what it needs to do to, to help people get their social media needs met but overall i like the platform so if you can't get in touch with me on twitter because for some reason it's been blocked or deleted or whatever i'm always available at appfolklorepod at gmail.com again over on mastodon at appfolklorepod at thefolklore.cafe you can find me on Facebook, which I go on every now and again, but I'm sure you could send me a message there. And I'm trying to become more available and active on Instagram. And again, that is at AppFolklorePod. Now, while most of us might not be a fan of Valentine's Day, I can't think of anyone I know in the folklore community that isn't a big fan of omens and spells and tokens centered around anything, whether it be weather, death omens, like I did a few months ago, or for this month, love. I want to start here first with a little uh, CMA. I'd like to quote myvillagewitch.com. The author there quotes a local witch in their blog concerning love spells that she, quote, refuses to do love spells. The problem is that they work. And sometimes the person asking for the spell ends up not being as interested as they thought they were, or they draw a person to them in an unhealthy way, such as stalking. When I get to the section on love spells, I want to make it abundantly clear that 
these spells are folklore, folk practices. I do not recommend, I uh, do not advise that you cast any of these spells because of consent. You might be in love with this person, and that doesn't necessarily mean that person is in love with you. So if you want to bring love into your life or friendship, make that feeling, that emotion stronger within yourself, and put that energy out into the world, go right ahead. But remember, consent. They might not be into you, so don't force them. One stereotype about romance in rural areas, especially in Appalachia, is that people tend to get married very young and very quickly. I found an interesting quote from the Encyclopedia of Appalachia on courtship customs. In rural Appalachia, a young person would often meet his or her love interest in church, which was usually the social as well as the religious center of a community. The first stage of courtship, which some people referred to as talking, began shortly after boys and girls reached their adolescence. It might occur following Sunday service, at which time a young man would walk a young woman home from church after obtaining permission from her parents. In the next stage of courtship, often referred to as sparking, the young man would escort the young woman to church on subsequent Sundays and bring her gifts at her parents' house, where his visits were under supervision. In preparation for seeing her boyfriend, the young woman would don her finest clothes and would occasionally apply some kind of makeup. But Appalachian society's behavioral codes expected a young single woman to act coyly toward her suitor. So at the beginning there, it talks about going to church, and that's where people would usually meet their future significant other. You have to understand one thing about rural areas like Appalachia or out in the country. Back in the day before cars, when everything was horse and buggy or by foot, walking five miles to church on a Sunday was an all-day endeavor. Also, church wasn't necessarily every Sunday. People needed to tend the farm, people had lots of little ones running around, so you can't really just make it every Sunday because you got stuff to do. So what congregations typically did was pick one Sunday, a first Sunday or second Sunday of every month, for the church gathering where everyone in town, everyone out in you know neighboring hollers or fields would come into the centralized local church and meet. That's your dating pool. So when you come in, you are so disconnected from the rest of the world because you do have your one little you know plot of land, your farm, your 50 or so acres that you're working. You're not going to see a lot of people. Maybe you go down to the general store and pick something up maybe once or twice a month. And that's why church is such a big event. And that's why you're going to find your future partner. And because of that, these folk practices such as talking and sparking and going steady hold great importance within the community because that's the way things are traditionally done. And once things do become serious, you don't see that person every single day. You don't have a phone to call them on every 10 minutes asking, what are you doing? You want to go hang out, get some food? There's no text messaging. There's no telephones. There's probably not even a mailbox for you to put a letter to have someone pick up and carry. Probably not even a post office or a postal service if someone could even read or write. So things like omens and charms and spells come into play a little more because of that uncertainty people have concerning one of the strongest emotions we all have, love. Trying to figure out, is this serious? Is it not? What can I do to make this person like me? And because 
dating isn't a thing you just, you know, well, this one didn't work out, that one didn't work out, we'll see how things go. You you want it to stick. I'm going to use friend of the show, the Frank C. Brown collection of North Carolina folklore as kind of the skeleton to base all of the the structure off of for the omens and the charms that I'm going to tell you all about this month. I use that as kind of the backbone for this entire podcast. It's seven volumes, and each one of them are, you know, 400, 500, 700, 800-page tomes of North Carolina folklore. They are all digitized and can be found online. I include a link in this episode and previous episodes. They're really fun to look at on, like, a rainy Sunday morning when you got nothing to do, and it's just little snippets, little passages, one-liners of folklore concerning anything and everything which makes it an excellent jumping off point for specific omens and sections because of the way it's laid out and then my subsequent research I can just kind of poke in there to fill out the skeleton. I'm going to order a trigger warning here first. The first section in the love omens part of the Frank C. Brown collection discusses sun showers. We have a uh inappropriately domestic violence centered phrase for sun showers here in the south so if it upsets you i'm sorry i'm going to get into the history of this first and then move on and the rest of the episode should be fine for those of you unfamiliar with what a sun shower is it's when exactly what it sounds like there's sun outside but yet it's pouring rain i've had this happen in my grandparents farmhouse several times growing up where one side of the house it's bright and sunny and completely dry. The other side of the house is pouring rain and dark, and it's one of the coolest things you'll ever see. So here in the South, we call the sun shower, the devil is beating his wife. And there's a couple of other terms. The devil is kissing his wife, or the devil is beating his wife and marrying his daughter. When I moved down here to the South 20-some years ago, I thought this was obviously very inappropriate, but I was curious why that doesn't make any sense. So I went to a website called theidioms.com and just typed in the phrase, the devil is beating his wife. So I want to go ahead and quote the website here. Several cultures now attribute this phenomenon to folkloric tales featuring clever animals or tricksters being related to or getting married to the devil. For instance, in the southern United States and Hungary, when they experience a sun shower, they say the devil is beating his wife with his walking stick, while the French would say the devil is beating his wife and marrying his daughter. The illustration of the idiomatic phrase can be explained as that of the devil spitting the fire of hell, the sun rays, and his wife's tears, the rain. I always thought that was interesting because the sun is not usually equated with the devil. If anything, it's starlight and rays of sunshine are usually the light from heaven. So I thought that was a really interesting turn there. Anyway, I'll continue on. The first recorded use of this phrase was in 1703 in a French play. To go and thrash him around the churchyard as the devil does his wife in rainy weather when the sun shines. Then, years later, the writer Jonathan Swift used it in 1738. The devil was beating his wife behind the door with a shoulder of mutton. Another version was recorded in 1893 in Inward's Weather Lore. If it rains while the sun is shining, the devil is beating his grandmother. So there's a little folklore tangent on a phrase that's very common around where I live now. And now that that's out of the way, let's get to some Appalachian love omens. 
a lot of these initial love omens are centered around hair, which makes perfect sense if you look into even the most superficial practices of witchcraft and trying to bind things. Hair and like fingernail clippings, toenail clippings, things like that are very important in binding spells. So again, from the Frank C. Brown collection of North Carolina folklore, when it is raining and the sun is shining at the same time, go out in the yard and turn up a rock or stone and you will find a hair or a lock of hair the same color as that is your future intended. When the sun is shining and it is raining all at the same time, spit under a rock. Look under the rock the next day and you will see a hair of the man you are going to marry. I'm thinking the reason for doing this during a sun shower is because of the fact that it's a liminal space. It's both sun and shower. And for those of you who don't know what a liminal space is or liminality is, it's kind of like a time between times or a threshold of a house. It's not one, it's not the other, it's not either or both. It is just liminal, the between space. And spells and incantations are said to work better in these liminal spaces because the veil between our world and the other world, the magical world, the fairy world, is thinner there. Love omens concerning the evening star are few and far between, but I found a few here that I thought were pretty interesting. Again, concerning hair. To determine the color of hair one's future mate is going to have, one should say this rhyme to the evening star. Starlight, star bright, first star I've seen tonight, have the wish I make tonight. Then, without turning around, reach behind and pick up a handful of dirt. In the dirt will be a hair from the head of your future mate. Concerning hair and the moon, when one first sees a new moon, let him step back three steps, repeating the following with eyes constantly on the moon. New moon, new moon, come unto me and tell me who my true love is to be. When this is said, reach down and get a handful of dirt, keeping eyes on the moon, and in that dirt will be a hair the color of his true loves. If you look at the full moon and make a wish, and then look under your right foot, you will find a hair the color of the man's hair you will marry. Then tie it in a handkerchief and put it under your pillow and you will see him during the night. The next section is on hair and birds, and obviously birds play a huge role in folklore and omens, whether it be weather or death or love, birth. So it's no surprise here that birds are such a huge part in trying to figure out if someone likes you or not. I'd like to quote Icy Sedgwick's blog and podcast, Fabulous Folklore, specifically her episode on love charms. She recommends that all her single ladies pay attention to the first bird you see on Valentine's Day. It'll predict your future partner's career. A canary means a doctor, a goldfinch is a wealthy person, white doves indicate a happy marriage, and woodpeckers mean you'll stay unmarried. Again, from the Frank C. Brown Collection, When a girl hears a dove cooing in the spring, she can take off her shoe and find a hair in it the color of the man's she will marry. The first time you hear a turtle dove in the spring, turn around three times, then remove your shoe and stocking from the right foot. Look in the heel of the stocking and you will find a hair the color of your future husband's hair. Doves or turtle doves play a huge part, obviously, and this is echoed from the author of The Blunt Project, Byron Ballard, where he writes, 
A white dove flying over your house is an omen that there will be a marriage in your family within a year. The next section is on kissing. Ew! If you think kissing is gross, remember, circle, circle, dot, dot, now you've got your cootie shot. I found quite a few references to itchy lips. If your lip itches, it is a sign that you are going to get a kiss or a sign that you want to be kissed. If your upper lip itches, it itches for a long, tall kiss. One of the more common ones is the first one you kiss after the new year begins will love you the most during the year. We all do that, right? The midnight kiss on New Year's Eve? Get a woman who never saw her father to kiss your left elbow. Get your left arm around your beloved and get the same elbow to his lips. If he kisses it, he will love you and you will love him. On the section about kissing and rhyming, I found several things that are all pretty much the same. If a girl accidentally makes a rhyme while talking, she must repeat the words, counting them out on her fingers. She then knows that the number of words corresponds with the letter of the alphabet that begins her future husband's name. I remember doing something similar with a soda tab on top of a can, where once you open the can, you bend it back and forth and you count, and when it pops off, that's the letter of the name, I can't remember if it's first or last, of either the person that you like, or the person that likes you, or the person you're going to be with. Very similar to that. I found a few references in the Frank C. Brown collection about being able to do something. And if you are able to do this, then you can have whomever you want, which I thought was interesting and, uh, you know, worth a shot for some of you, perhaps. Let me know if it works. If you can touch your little finger and your forefinger across the back of your hand, you can marry whomever you wish. If your first and fourth fingers can be made to touch inside and out of your hand, you may get any woman you desire. If anyone walks nine rails without falling off, he can marry whomever he wants. Walk 100 railroad rails consecutively and you can marry anyone you wish. And now to my favorite section, the love charms, tokens, and aphrodisiacs. If a young girl knows her admirer loves her, and she wants him to come within three days, let her take a clean sheet of white paper without lines, a pin with a new point, then prick the tip of her ring finger on the left hand. She must then write both their names as small as possible in the middle of the page with her blood. Make three rings around the names in blood. Fold the paper as not to bend the writing. Tie it with her own hair and without letting anyone know of it, bury it at nine o'clock at night. If he loves her, he will come within three days without fail. If your lover is trying to leave, a good remedy is to get a hair around his neck under his collar, and he can never get rid of it. When he tries to make love to another girl, it will choke him, and he is sure to return. You can put the girl from his mind, in case you have trouble getting the hair around his neck, by taking a lock of her hair and putting it in a split in a sliver from a lightning-struck white pine, and by then throwing the pine in running water, he will go as far as the water runs. If your lover is chasing after another woman, have an old granny make a beeswax doll using a picture of the other woman, and bury it under a rotten stump. If the foregoing charm does not work, the girl herself is given the effigy of the other woman, 
to place in the chimney where it is hot enough to melt it away and thus destroy her rival. The parings from your left forefinger nail, three hairs from your head, wet in your blood and tied in a garment you have worn, is a love charm. Bury it under the northeast corner of your beloved's house. I want to quote a couple of extra love charms from the book Slavic Witchcraft, Old World Conjuring Spells and Folklore by Natasha Helvin. This was one of those books that I purchased because I heard about it from somewhere and it's just sat on my shelf. I bought it because I am of Slavic descent and obviously, like I've said, I love studying uh, the history of witchcraft. So I thought I'd open it up, especially for y'all on this episode, just to see what fun spells might be in there. Again, remember consent. Don't try these on anyone. That's just rude. Love spell with wine. Purchase a bottle of good red wine at the store. Do not take change. If this is not possible, drop the change at the shop's doorstep. Go home. Close the doors and windows and make sure that nobody will bother you. Sit in the center of the room and relax. Take the bottle in both hands and hold it up so that while you read the spell, your breath touches it. You need to put your maximum of emotions and feelings or energy into this. Close your eyes, picture before you the image of your beloved, and repeat these words for about ten minutes. As I speak, I spell this wine. Name of the Chosen One's Passion to be Mine. His thoughts and feelings submit to me. As soon as he sips this wine, his love eternal will be mine. Now wrap the bottle in a clean white towel and lay it under your bed. It must stay there for three nights. During this time, the energy of your desire will fully enter the drink. Then, within 24 hours, you need to treat your lover with this wine. To avoid suspicion, think of an occasion in advance. When the man takes the first sip, inwardly repeat the words of the spell, once is enough, while looking into his eyes. Bind your chosen one at five o'clock. To bind your chosen one to yourself at five o'clock in the afternoon, take a scarlet candle in your left hand and well-salted black bread in your right. Stand like that on the front doorstep of your house. Face the street and say, With bright flames I conjure, flesh of the earth I command. In soul and body, name, I demand. To cling to me by heart and hand, I'll show her kindness time and again. On a dark night and a bright day, by the new moon and when the old wanes, for me she withered, but didn't die, thinking of men while dying. I would be always on her mind. While saying these words, cross the slice of bread three times. When you have finished your spell, blow out the candle and eat the bread. After that, you shouldn't drink anything until sunset. Otherwise, the strength of your spell will diminish. I could go on and on with that book. It is such a wonderful book and collection of Slavic witchcraft, which, like I've said before, is one of my hobbies to research when I'm not doing Appalachian folklore. I found another section from Frankie Brown's books called The Dumb Supper. I was not familiar with this. I'd never heard of it before. And there was quite a big section. So it describes The Dumb Supper as two girls sweep the floor together, set the table, cook a meal, put it on the table, then open the door and sit and wait. The guest who comes in the table will be the future intended of one of them. This is called the dumb supper. Set a dumb table. 
Go backwards in silence to the sideboard or cupboard. Move backward and work with your hands behind you. Set the table in silence. Place a chair, take your seat, and remain till midnight. At that hour, a vehicle will seem to drive up, and the phantom of your future husband will alight. If you are to die before marriage, a coffin will appear instead. There's another big section on how to use the Bible to figure out who you're going to fall in love with. To ascertain the initials of one's future husband or wife, take the lower part of a key and place it on Ruth chapter 1 verse 16. Tie a string around the book to keep the key with the ring outside in position. Then hold it suspended from the tip of the fingers of two persons who repeat, and treat me not to leave thee, etc. And whatever letter the key is on will be the initial of your future husband or wife. Certain saints' days are remembered in the coves by the charms and incantations that are used on those days. A dozen old charms and methods to tell who your true love is recall the legend of St. Agnes. Mountain maidens ascertain their fate on the eve of the gentle saint by this charm. All the cover is removed from the bed by the girl who wishes to know her fate. She replaces it, saying as she spreads the cover, There are four corners to my bed, on which I now the cover spread. May I this night in trouble be, and the man I'm to wed come rescue me. Then she eats an apple and goes to bed backwards without speaking to a soul. I have a few additional miscellaneous love omens that I wanted to tack on here at the end. I didn't really have a place to put them, but they do tie in with everything I've already spoken about so far in the episode. From the website The Blunt Project, collect a handful of violet buds, think romantic thoughts, and then toss them in front of you. Look at the patterns they form on the ground. They should suggest a name or the initials of your future mate. If you get better results with white blossoms, then your mate will be faithful always. If you get better results with purple blossoms, your marriage will be passionate. For love, take a pair of scissors and inscribe your name on the insides of one of the blades and his name on the inside of the other, then bury the scissors. From the Appalachian Roots blog, if a young woman leaves her house early on Valentine's Day, walks down to the road, and the first person she meets is a man, she will be married within the next three months. If a courting couple each places an acorn in a bowl of water and the acorns drift towards one another, the couple will soon marry. Break a coin under the new moon and sew half of it in the clothes of the person you're after, and the person will fall in love with you. The Frank C. Brown collection has a variant of this. A coin broken on the new of the moon and one half sewed in the clothing of one who is vainly loved will bring a return of the wasted affection. Name a fishing hook after the person you love. If you catch a fish with the hook, it means the love is true. Frank C. Brown has a variation of this as well. The following is what a lady told me made her husband love her. She put a frog in a box, and late that evening she placed the box containing the frog over an ant hole. The ants ate the meat. A week later, she went to the box and found a bone of the frog in the shape of a fish hook. She took the hook and put it in her husband's coat, and he fell in love with her again. A keen listener will have noted the presence of stepping or shoes or stockings throughout all of this. Shoes play a very important part in these love omens. I think because shoes were so hard to come by, 
if you have a pair of shoes, you want to take care of them because you don't want sore feet. You have sore feet, can't get your work done. So again, they're kind of a liminal space and very respected because it's that space between your body and the earth and placing a token in there or finding something underneath it is usually viewed as some kind of an omen. If you put a four-leaf clover in your shoe, you'll marry the first person you meet. If you find a button, put it in your shoe. The first man you go across water with will be your husband. And a little bit of German folklore to finish up. A man will surely fall in love with a woman if she urinates in his shoe. And that's this month's episode on Appalachian love omens, charms, spells, and tokens. This month's folk remedy section comes from Jerry Baker's Grandma Putz's Old Time Vinegar, Garlic, Baking Soda, and 101 More Problem Solvers. Rachel over at Folklore Food and Fairy Tales posted something on, I think it was Mastodon, about rosemary and the folklore surrounding that amazing, wonderful herb. I have a giant rosemary bush outside. Coincidentally, I've been thinking recently how I need to go harvest some of that bush and dehydrate it because I'm out of dried rosemary. And then I see her post. And then when I'm quickly trying to find something to read for this section, I immediately turn to a page on rosemary. Coincidence? Synchronicity? It's coincidence. So rosemary is the herb of remembrance. Most everybody knows that. And if you don't, there's a wonderful podcast episode by, guess who? Icy Sedgwick at Fabulous Folklore on the folklore of rosemary. I won't get into the folklore here. I will let you research that on your own. What I will do is tell you how rosemary can be useful inside your home for things other than cooking. From Grandma Putts. Rosemary, like Pennyroyal, does a dandy job of keeping ticks and fleas away from you and your four-footed pals. It's an evergreen shrub with pale blue flowers and aromatic grayish foliage. It's handy only in zones 8 to 10, but in colder territory you can grow it in a pot outside. Then bring it indoors at the first sign of frost. It'll sail right through the winter in a sunny window. To make your repellent powder, dry the leaves and grind them up in a blender. Then rub the powder into your pet's fur and sprinkle it around their and your outdoor play areas. If you prefer a tick and flea repellent in liquid form, make a big batch of one of grandma's favorites, rosemary tea. Just boil four cups of spring water in a pan and toss in one cup of rosemary leaves either dried or fresh. Cover the pan, remove it from the heat, and let it cool. Strain the tea into another pan or jar, and let it sit while you give Rover a bath with a high-quality dog shampoo, not the flea and tick kind. Rinse well to remove all traces of the shampoo, then pour the tea onto his coat. Work it in well and let it dry. Those blood-sucking bugs will dine elsewhere. And for those of you who like to sew or have friends who like to sew, this last little one I thought was really fun for Christmas presents, birthday presents, whatever. If you're looking for a small gift for all the sewing buffs on your list, follow Grandma Putt's example and make a bunch of rosemary pincushions. Just buy some small muslin bags at a craft shop, or, as Grandma did, make your own from scraps of pretty fabric and ribbon. Then pack the pouch as full as you can with dried rosemary and stitch it closed. Besides giving off a wonderful aroma, the rosemary will keep your sewing needle sharp and free of rust. 
And there we go. That's this month's episode of the Appalachian Folklore Podcast. Thank you, as always, for stopping by. If you have any fun love omens or charms that you heard growing up, send them along to me at appfolklorepod at gmail.com, at appfolklorepod at thefolklore.cafe on Mastodon, or you can try me on Twitter. I'll be in and out at appfolklorepod there as well. This month's Stories from the Cabin will happen right around Valentine's Day, Not sure if I'm going to do a corny love story yet or not, but be on the lookout for that episode on the 15th. And as for the Appalachian Folklore Podcast, I will see you on March 1st. Y'all be good. Thanks for spending your time with me here at the Appalachian Folklore Podcast. If you'd be so kind as to rate and review this show on whatever platform you use, I'd be much obliged as it helps spread the word. You can email me at appfolklorepod at gmail.com and visit my website, shows.acast.com slash AFP. You can find me at appfolklorepod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also find me on Mastodon at appfolklorepod at thefolklore.cafe. Thanks to Jonathan Ochoa for the AFP cover art. You can find his work on Instagram at inkwellgraphicdesign. Thanks again for listening.